Okay, Pasa Mufasa. Welcome to the Micropreneur Podcast. Today we've got Danielle Ryan Broida joining us for the second time on this platform. And Danielle has just co-written a wonderful book with her colleague Taro, the founder of Four Sigmatic. You might have heard of it. Arguably the preeminent functional mushroom purveying brand on the planet. So Danielle and Taro know a thing or two about functional mushrooms. And this book dives into the ancestral legacy and the modern scientific framework corroborating the power of healing adaptogens, which is the title of the book. I've just finished my copy this week, and I've certainly never come across as authoritative and accessible a text that dives into the myriad benefits of adaptogens, which is a term that Danielle is going to define and unpack for us in this episode. Thank you, everybody, for joining us. This book is brand spanking new, just released on September 26th this week. So without further ado, let's hear what Danielle Ryan Broida has to say about healing adaptogens. Okay, Pasa Mufasa, Danielle Ryan Broida, welcome back to the Micropreneur Podcast. It's great to see you again, and we've both had some epic travels around the world since our last podcast episode together. I saw that you were out in Turkey and in Thailand, two destinations I love dearly. And perhaps most notably, you've written an extraordinary book with your Four Sigmatic colleague, Taro, which I've just finished this morning. And that book is, of course, called Healing Adaptogens. And I can't wait to talk about it with you. So let's start off by broadly defining adaptogens, which you do very well in the book. What exactly is an adaptogen and why should people seriously consider integrating adaptogens into their daily health protocol? Yeah, love this place to start. Start from the very beginning. Great to see you, Dennis. It's awesome to be here and be back. Adaptions are so relevant today. They're popping up all over the place. We're seeing them like in gas station gummies and in conventional supermarkets. And yet there's still a lot of confusion about what they actually are. And fungi are a big part of this. So it's relevant. But where we kind of start is thinking about adaptions like an umbrella category. So within plant medicine, as herbalists, we group different species based on their action, different uh, kind of like the similarities that they have among them. So there's herbs that are great for our nervous system, right? Helping us relax. We call these nervines or sedatives. There's herbs that we use for digestive purposes. They're often called carminatives, like warming, spicy herbs. Adaptions are another grouping, so an umbrella category that contains about 30 species. It's actually a, a bit debated. In our book, we go into the top 21 most relevant species for what most of us are dealing with today, but there's about 30 of them. Five-ish are fungi. Um, the others are plants. And what they all have in common is these three things. They're all non-toxic. So this means they're safe to take every day. There isn't a dose where you're suddenly pushed over an edge and uh, you start experiencing side effects. That'll be clear when we get through the other two. So they're all non-toxic. Um, they're all normalizing. So they have this kind of waterfall effect in the body where they are replenishing with this sheer amount of nutrients that they each contain multiple systems of the body at the same time. So really looking at the body like an ecosystem, um, normalizing, helping our bodies uh, get back to the state of balance of equilibrium through many mechanisms, which are so fascinating. And then the third is that they're non-specific. So they're non-toxic, normalizing, non-specific. And this third one is kind of what trips people up because we are so trained in the West to choose a medicine, whether it's pharmaceutical or natural, doesn't matter. We choose a medicine based on a symptom that we're having. I have a headache. Let me reach for an ibuprofen or feverfew tincture, perhaps, you know, like we're, we're treating that, that direct experience. And the non-specific nature of adaptogens means they don't actually work that way. They have compounds that are often in opposition to each other. So some compounds might be stimulating, some might be relaxing. And depending on the state of your body, when you ingest that adaptogen, it will depend on how you react and how you feel, right? You might get a little more lifted, you might feel more relaxed. This happens on the level of our immune system right? Our immune system might be more stimulated or it might be down-regulated. So there's this constant non-specific activity, which is actually what leads to a lot of their benefits, right? And, and makes them so appropriate for a wide range of people. You know, if you haven't dabbled in the world of herbal medicine, you're like, I don't know where to start. Uh, adaptions are really taking the spotlight right now. One, because I think 
this non-specific action is so relevant and and regardless of the state of your body you know you might think you're reaching for lion's mane to um, support cognitive function and then you realize you're sleeping better and you're less stressed and maybe your digestion is improving right so there's this non-specific action and it's having a cascade um, response in the body which leads to benefits beyond what we just reached for it in the first place we're also in a time where we're more stressed than ever before Right? like collectively we are so stressed part of this is things that we can control and a lot of it is is things that we can't right we're just living in a world with a lot of microplastics everywhere and bombarding news and uh, it's really challenging to support our stress response and how we do deal with stress uh with my perspective as an herbalist nutritionist is what tools do we have what nutrients do we have in our arsenal in our body to bring us back into a state of balance where we then feel energy and vital and, and our best selves. And um, our food is just less nutrient dense than it's ever been before. Uh, we're also eating less healthy diets than we have ever ate before. Our soil is less nutrient rich. And so essentially what this boils down to is we have more stress, it's compounding, it's unavoidable, and we have less resources to deal with all this stress. And so we're in this crux where we're like, okay, what do we do? We've been relying on a lot of mechanisms for the past couple decades and, and people are starting to wake up and say like, hey, I was just replacing this handful of symptoms for a new handful of symptoms and are like, what else is out there? What else can I do uh, to support my body long term? And, and we're seeing a rise in things like ancient traditional practices, both from the actual herbal side of things, but also some of these other like energetic and spiritual practices, be it meditation and breath work and yoga and sauna, cold therapy, right? This is all emerging again. Um, and so, yeah, there's a lot of reasons in intersection why adaptions are, are really relevant and kind of hitting us at this, this perfect time where we, where we need them perhaps more than ever. And I think that this could be a good place to dive into a little bit of the differences in frameworks and approaches between Western medicine, which many of us grew up around, and Ayurvedic medicine and traditional Chinese medicine, which you draw heavily from in your work and which you cover extensively in the book. I was just out in Egypt and I was exposed to traditional Bedouin herbal medicine on the Sinai Peninsula. And I saw a lot of the same roots and herbs being sold at an open air market in a Nubian village near Aswan, down in the south, near Sudan. And it's so enchanting to know that these herbal traditions are likely unbroken bodies of medical knowledge that go back hundreds or thousands of years. But the world of ancient Egyptian and Bedouin medicine is still largely shrouded in secrecy, at least as far as its integration into global culture. Now, Ayurveda and traditional Chinese medicine are fairly well known, or you know, herbs like ashwagandha and tulsi, which you cover extensively in the book, and one of the reasons which I learned in the book for this is that Ayurveda and traditional Chinese medicine did a great job of canonizing and documenting their knowledge and conserving that. So I know that you've studied this quite a bit, and I'd love to hear about just this difference in approach between health of the human body and treating health in traditional Chinese medicine and Ayurveda and more Eastern herbal traditions versus the Western traditions, which you just touched upon. Yeah, right on. The Bedouin tradition, there's so many amazing folk lineages around the world that have used and still rely on a lot of the, the plants and the fungi that, that we'll be talking about today. And so I like to think of the book and some of these conversations as more of a, of a remembering and honoring of, of bringing some of these ancient traditions back not for the first time, but back into our consciousness. Um, and as you mentioned, yeah, Western medicine, the largest practice system in the world today, second to TCM, traditional Chinese medicine, third to Ayurveda, but there's so many other traditions and, and there's, many, uh, there's many differences uh, between what we've been practicing, which is only you know, a few hundred years old versus a lot of these other lineages. Uh, that's kind of the first difference is there's several thousands years of of documented use and anecdotal evidence of, of practicing some of the methods within these within these systems of medicine. One of the big differences is the way that we look at the body. So looking at the body as an ecosystem where one supporting one part of the body uh, automatically will 
inter will like interact with another part and another part and there's this almost domino effect that begins to happen so when we when we recognize the body as an ecosystem if someone's experiencing a headache this is an example i give in the book the reason why you might be experiencing a headache is going to be different for each person experiencing a headache you know let's say we both show up and we're like whoa we both have headaches today but we're in different parts of the world. We slept differently last night. We've had different breakfasts, right? We've probably consumed different mushrooms today. Like what, what is bringing us to the table? And uh, in Western medicine, the symptom is really, is really identified. And it said, okay, let's, let's treat the headache. And regardless of the body experiencing a headache, a headache is a headache is a headache. Um, and if you look at Ayurveda or TCM or maybe Bedouin medicine or Russian folk medicine or Thai folk medicine, uh, it says, okay, you have a headache, what's going on? So it's more of a root-based approach, looking at why is this headache um, showing its face, right? Why is this uh, um, being a loud response so that our bodies are, it's like a message to our bodies. The headache isn't the end result. It's, oh, uh, the body's experiencing a headache because the gut is imbalanced or because your nervous system is exhausted and frayed and you didn't sleep last night. Um, you're expressing a headache because you're deficient in magnesium, for example, right? This, this amazing mineral that's responsible for cellular relaxation. It could be different for every body, right? So this ecosystem approach, also looking at the body as unique. This is so huge. I go into this a lot in the book and it's something I believe in, in deeply in private practice because I would work with so many clients and they, they were diagnosed with the same ailment. I have Lyme disease, I have Crohn's disease, I have hypothyroid, hyperthyroid, whatever it might be, and yet their symptom picture is completely different. And so if we attach ourselves to the label, uh, there's only so far we can go, right? And a lot of times you don't see uh, healing happening, you don't see the, the disappearing of symptoms, however we wanna call it, right? We don't say you're healed, but symptoms begin to go away until you really look at the body. And in all traditional systems of medicine, it was understood that there are different constitutions or in Ayurveda, they're called doshas. In TCM, they're called temperaments. Essentially, they are elements that exist within our body. So we have all the elements within us, right? Fire, water, earth, air. Uh, and in different, uh, kind of in different degrees. And this is uh, determined based on some of it, you know, in, in Ayurveda, it's called your Prakriti Dosha. It's like your, the Dosha was um, given to you from the moment of conception, uh, but it, it can range based on uh, where you live. So if you're at sea level or high in the mountains at, at elevation where it's really dry, based on the foods you're eating, how much you're exercising, right? There's different things can, that can influence our constitution but it's essentially an energetic mark that helps us determine if our bodies are either more moist or dry, so where they fall on that, that spectrum, and whether we're more hot or cold, so on this temperature scale. And this is really unique because once you really know your constitution, or and this can change throughout the season and, and throughout times of your life, but understanding your constitution can be a profound way to help you choose the right medicines um, to support your unique body. Because just like each, each uh, body is unique, every plant is unique too, right? And every fungi, they have a different energetic profile. So um, aloe vera, for example, is really cold and moist, right? That's kind of an obvious one. Uh, cayenne pepper is really hot and dry, right? We, it's kind of like, oh yeah, when we think about it that way, but then there's, there's a full spectrum where every other herb and every other fungi falls somewhere within that. And so even if we're told like, hey, lion's mane is good for the brain, um, depending on your constitution and the constitution of that mushroom, perhaps that's the right brain supporting uh, um, medicine for you, but perhaps there's many others that more, it's like matchmaking in a way, right? That more fit your constitution. I think that's that's really where kind of like the juicy magic happens with herbal medicine. And this isn't new. Like this is this is how we've have we've treated bodies and how we've supported our health uh, for, for thousands of years up until the last couple hundred. And as adaptogens are re-entering the global consciousness and touching all corners of the globe, there are 
kind of subcategories, there are other topics of conversation that come alongside with this. And one of those that I've been exposed to via hosting this podcast is about the differences in mineral profile between wild harvested and lab grown adaptogens, which is something that you touch on in the book and about about the broader ethical implications and the buzz surrounding wild harvesting herbs versus cultivating them. And it's not always so black and white from what I understand. For example, as you touch upon in the book with Ophiocordyceps sinensis, a lot of people would probably prefer to get the wild fruiting body directly from the Tibetan plateau, but for ecological and humanitarian reasons, that's not very sustainable or scalable. And I've heard the same with CMOS, people who have sent me CMOS products, which is becoming increasingly popular, that I've heard some companies condemn wild harvesting and say that you should be getting your CMOS from a sustainable farm that's growing it. Okay, let's talk about chaga in this context, because Chaga is a notable adaptogen included in the book and which Four Sigmatic incorporates heavily into your product line. And my understanding is that lab-grown chaga is lacking the same robustness of wild-harvested chaga because chaga gets most of its nutrients from the tree that it grows on. So it's also my understanding that wild-harvested and sustainable don't always have to be mutually exclusive, as is the case with chaga cultivation in northern Finland and elsewhere. So what are some of your thoughts on wild-harvested harvested adaptogens versus lab-grown adaptogens regarding best practices, ethics, and scalability when it comes to sourcing adaptogens? Mm, so there's this all comes down to, there's this word called xenohormesis. And it's essentially uh, a lot of our adaptogens, they are grown naturally in places where they are exposed to an extreme amount of environmental stressors. And in response, that plantar fungi develops compounds. A lot of times these are polyphenols that humans or animals can then use to support our bodies with a lot of stressors and, and um, kind of bring us back into balance similarly as the resilience of the plants use for themselves. Um, so this is a really important topic when it comes to adaptogens and where possible, of course, we can go through each one. And, and I do that in the book to be like, okay, this is, this is where you should source this. And this is the home country and origin country. But for the most part, if we can source from countries of origin where these evolve to grow, they are going to be a completely different phytochemical profile than if they're grown in a laboratory setting. And this comes down to that xenohermesis. Um, chaga is a great example. Um, and that kind of Yes, there's there's pieces of, of the xenohermesis in chaga, but furthermore, um, with most of our functional mushrooms, cordyceps being one of the, the main exceptions, they are the functional varieties are often grown on wood, right? So big difference, like say this in my one-on-one -on -one mycology classes, it's like if you're getting a, a culinary, a psychedelic, a poisonous mushroom, it's probably going to come from the earth, from the soil, from the ground, and a functional or medicinal mushroom is often going to be growing from a tree. Uh, most of them have specific trees that they like to grow on, right? This, this ideal substrate. And for chaga, it's almost always birch trees. There's exceptions, but, but always birch. And so when we think about sustainability and we think about countries of origin, chaga is a prime example. So as an herbalist, there's a rule of thumb. When you go out and you find a stand of a, of a plant or a species you want to go harvest, you take less than 10%. Right, so you, you, you scope the whole area and you say, I'm gonna take less than 10%. This guarantees there will be, or as much as possible, there will be a yield the following year, that there's enough for other herbalists, that you're not over pillaging and over harvesting, that you're respecting the land. And so um, with chaga, we have to look where is chaga most abundant? And there happens to be the largest birch forest in the world. It's called the taiga forest um, in Siberia. And it's bigger than the continental US. This is a really massive um, birch forest. So that's the first thing. Okay, if we're going to wild harvest chaga, which we know is important because one, uh, our fungi are what they eat. You know this, just like we are what what they eat, right? Big differences in, in 1969 when, when fungi developed, were recognized as their own kingdom. I was like, oh, they can't photosynthesize, right? They actually are, are using what they're grown on as their food to, to evolve and thrive. And so, so much of what makes chaga chaga is compounds in the bark of the birch tree, like betalinic acid, right? An amazing antioxidant um, profile in chaga is, comes from betalin in the bark of the birch tree. So if you're lab growing chaga, it's going to be void of that betalin, which is one of the reasons we consume it. Um, <clears throat> so growing from trees, right, out, out in nature is, is 
huge, but then where is, where is this abundant? Um, so we, we look to the taiga, which is, which is the largest birch stand there is. Um, it's also important to know there's like a lot of debate around chaga sustainability and um, chaga never infects healthy trees. So it only infects trees that are, are sick or dying. And this is a important part of sustainable forestry is that trees that are, are sick or damaged um, need to be decomposed and make room for young, healthy saplings in the forest. Um, it also uh, is kind of a myth. You don't need to cut down any tree in order to harvest chaga. Uh, it, it's this large conch. It's actually not technically a mushroom. I mean, I don't know. The chaga does fruit, a fruiting body. It's super rare. I've seen one mycologist friend that's sent me a picture of it once in my life. It's the only time I've seen a chaga fruiting body. But what we use is actually the conch, right? This exterior mycelial mass, um, sometimes called a sclerotium, but it's a, it's a big conch, like canker on the side of the birch tree. And so you don't need to cut down the birch tree. Um, in fact, a chaga takes, can take up to 20 years to fully mature and break down the host tree. Um, so you only need to harvest a portion of it. And then if you're extracting, which we talked about deeply on our first show together, um, you need a lot less to have the same uh, kind of medicinal potency at the end. So uh, extracting like potentizes and you, you basically are concentrating like up to 10x uh, the amount that you started with. And uh, yeah, so I mean, really feel passionately about getting our chaga from the wild. I think there's been a, a big myth around like the the sustainability issues. Of course, you want to know that you're sourcing it from a place where, where the birch trees are abundant, where there is an abundant amount of chaga, right? We don't want to be stealing from um, birch trees with chaga conks up in, up in Canada um, or up in the, the Northeast US where indigenous people still rely heavily on the use of this as, as part of medicine for their for their community. Um, but if we're getting it and working with local people, this is really important too. And we're, we're sourcing from native countries is, um, we as Forcingmatic, like we're not going out there and harvesting the chaga conks ourselves. We'll go and meet the harvesters, but we work with local people that have been doing this at least with us for a decade. And that's their lifelong career and often generation olds of, um, of going out and knowing how to respect the forest and harvest sustainably, uh, leave enough for, for other harvesters or other generations or, or next year. And uh, yeah, if we're doing that properly, there can be an intersection of, of sustainability and the xenohormesis and getting things in their most potent form from the places that they evolved to grow in. Let's dive a little bit deeper into demystifying wellness industry and adaptogen vendor practices. And one of the topics that you cover in your book, which I've come to understand is a boondoggle for consumers and aspiring health nuts everywhere, is the mislabeling of products. And this is something we've seen a lot with functional mushroom brands and with people trying to enter the market. It unfortunately happens a lot where brands either dilute the offerings they claim are inside of their products or outright mislabel the products. And one notable example of this uh, that's touched upon in the book comes from products containing Eleuthero in that true Eleuthero is derived from Eleutherococcus senticosis. Never said these words out loud, so forgive me. And that, But many Eleuthero products available on the market are not of the real senticosis species. So this unscrupulousness exercised by vendors in the adaptogen market touches virtually every corner of the trade. And we know it happens a lot with mushrooms too, as, as I touched upon. So if I'm a person who wants to buy quality adaptogens and avoid buying something that's more snake oil, and to really ensure that we're getting products that contain the true power of the herbs and the mushrooms that we all want in our lives, what are some best practices for ensuring that we're purchasing quality adaptogens and not diluted or mislabeled adaptogen containing products? I love this question. <laughs> the most expensive supplement you'll ever buy is the one that doesn't work. And there is so much riffraff out there. And so one of my biggest pet peeves is when someone has spent money on a product that they think contains Tulsi or ashwagandha or cordyceps or whatever it might be. And they're not getting that. And then they don't believe in that medicine. They're like, yeah, I tried it. It didn't work. And I'm like, well, were you checking these few things, right? Was it the real thing? Was it extracted properly? Like, was it bioavailable? Um, and so in the book, I do offer some 
brands, right? Of these are like small brands that you can make sure are doing it right and big box stores. But what I'd rather do, there's so many new brands coming on the market every day and there will continue to be. So it's how do we really educate people on what to look for? So regardless of the brand or the store or what part of the world they're in, that you can still use this checklist and make sure that you're getting a quality adaptogen. Um, and the first thing, as you mentioned, Dennis, is, is what is making sure you're getting what you're wanting to purchase. Um, and this might sound silly, but a lot of times uh, brands won't use the full Latin name of a species. And so a Latin name is like, I'm Danielle Ryan Broida and you're Dennis Walker. Those are our full Latin names. And we might have nicknames in all these different countries that we travel to, right? We probably do. There's maybe five to 10 names that different people call us. Um, and same thing with all of our plants and fungi. And so if you are in, and I'm seeing this in, oh my gosh, there's some products that are using um, like some Spanish name for a, for a really common plant. And people are like, oh, this is some cool, you know, unique root that I've never heard. And I'm like, that's ashwagandha or that's like turmeric. Like it's, the mislabeling is crazy. So really looking for the Latin name ensures that doesn't change no matter what language you speak, what country in the world, like that is true to form. So making sure you're getting what you, what you are intending to purchase. Um, the other part is the, the part of your, or your mushroom or part of your plant. I like to call this like the power hub. So if we're using, um, I don't know, ashwagandha is coming up a lot today. Like the, the medicine, the power hub of ashwagandha is the root. Uh, ashwagandha is in the same family as tomatoes and peppers and eggplant, right? So it has these like big red orange fruits to them. That's not where the medicine lies, right? So we don't want to be purchasing an ashwagandha and it's like, oh, this is made from the fruit. Or similarly with our mushroom, we want to get the real fruiting body, right? We don't want mycelium or primordia. Um, so you want to get the right species, right? Checking that Latin name and making sure it's the right part that actually contains the, the bioactive compounds. Um, from there, you wanna make sure that it's actually bioavailable to your body. Um, so with, with our mushrooms, this means we have to break open that chitin, right? We have to extract, but same with many of our other plant adaptogens, they have to be extracted, as we talked about last time, in either water or in alcohol, right? There's different methods of extraction so that our bodies can actually use that power hub. Um, and then dosage is so huge. I think we're seeing like a spillover from the cannabis industry where there's these really small dosages, like, oh, this contains 2.5 milligrams. People are like, cool, like that could be an effective dose. Whereas in our, in our adaptogens, I mean, it's different for each species, but it's typically more around like 200 to 1,000 milligrams for an effective dose. So this is a way that companies will kind of like cheat too and put in like just a little like splash of something called like fairy dust. And it's like, oh, on the front, this contains this really powerful adaptogen and there's so little in there that your body can't actually feel the effects. Um, of course, quality, so key. Like with our mushrooms, um, we know our, our mushrooms are bioaccumulators, right? Which is epic for the ecosystem, like microremediation and all this amazing work that they can do. But when we're, when we're using them as adaptogens, as medicine, we have to make sure that the quality is as clean as possible so that we're not using a, a mushroom that's been um, you know, grown on a substrate with like heavy metals or has mycotoxins in it or molds or pesticides. Um, so like organic is kind of the first line of defense for a lot of these. Beyond that, I recommend um, making sure and you can reach out to a brand to see if things are third party lab tested, right? Really clean. Um, and then sustainability and sourcing, right? If we can, uh, we know there's going to be a higher quality supplement or root or mushroom, whatever we're using, if it's coming from its native land, right? The country of origin that it's evolved to grow in. Uh, and, and the ethics become part of that too, right? So we look at that and we say, oh, cordyceps, okay. Maybe it's better to get a militaris that's grown in a lab in, in China perhaps, or in the US. Um, and, and yeah, that's like the more ethical option there. But the sustainability piece has always got to be top of mind if we want to 
continue to use these species in our life and ideally pass them on to our, our children and grandchildren, right? Making sure we're, we're respecting them, we're paying attention to where they come from. And I think from that, like when we can check off this, this list, like, okay, it's the right form and the, the right part of the plant, it's the proper dosage, it's, the, it's high quality, it's bioavailable, uh, it's sustainable and, and the best option possible, we really start to learn more about this species as like a unique being. It's like his own individual is getting a little heady, but truly we're like, wow, this is, this needs a lot of similar things as I do to grow and survive and thrive. And so if I want to continue to experience the benefits from reishi or from holy basil, I need to make sure that the land that this is growing from and that it needs to grow from is protected as well. So it really comes back to um, connecting to the planet, protecting the planet so that we have these allies uh, to help get us through, right? This dual relationship begins to form. Sure. And I learned from the book that your co-author Taro is actually the 13th generation of a Finlander who's tending to the land out there. So I guess that he comes from a lineage that knows something about passing on adaptogens and herbal medicines to future generations, which is really cool. So in the book, you also write that adaptogens have a push-pull mechanism that dictates how they operate and why they may be so effective at restoring, defending, and promoting health. Can you dive into what exactly the push-pull mechanism is when it comes to how adaptogens function in our body? Yeah, absolutely. So there's a, a couple examples of this, and this speaks to that non-specific action we were talking about by definition of adaptogens. Um, but a lot of times adaptogens have phytocompounds, right? Phytoconstituents that work in opposition to each other, but exist within that same species. So cacao, right? Our beloved chocolate comes from Theobroma cacao. If we talk about the Latin name and what part, right? It's not the root, it's not the leaf, it's the bean or the pod or the seed of the cacao. Um, you have a great, uh, little gif or, or parody on cacao and on your Instagram. Everyone go check it out. If you haven't seen Dennis's cacao skit yet, but cacao is really powerful. And there's, there's reasons for this. It is the single most phytochemically complex food on the planet. So there are a huge number of identified amino acids, vitamins, minerals, sugars, and two that are really relevant for, for explaining this example are magnesium that I touched on briefly, right? I think of magnesium as like this cellular relaxer. It's the number one nutrient deficiency in the American population. Over 70% of us are deficient in magnesium and it's literally our cellular relaxer. So I think about how stressed we are as a society and I'm like, we are missing the mineral that allows us to relax. Like, come on. And so cacao has this amazing supply of, of magnesium. So think of it as this, um, yeah, like one end of the push pull, but then it also contains theobromine. So theobromine uh, is really similar molecularly to caffeine. So a lot of people think that cacao or chocolate has caffeine in it. Um, it doesn't, it usually has less than 2%, if any. It's actually just that theobromine, which is responsible for like that cacao flow, the brain benefits, that kind of stimulation, uh, concentration, like all these benefits that people talk about, like, wow, I, I feel like this kind of elevated response from drinking cacao, those both exist together within the same pod. And so if we think of theobromine like a push and the, the magnesium like a pull, they're both there in high concentrations. And so we could both drink the same cacao and depending on the state of our bodies when we drink that cacao, I might get into like this really cool flow state where I'm like concentrate, I'm meditating, I'm doing anything, whatever. And you might feel like super chilled out and relaxed and ready for bed. Um, that's, that's part of this non-specific push-pull activity that's happening. And each of our adaptogens have a similar, um, a similar thing going on here, right? Where there's these compounds that work synergistically and one will either be louder, let's say, than another. Um, in the body based on what your body's needing. So a lot of times people say adaptogens, right? They're adapting to your body's needs. This is part of the explanation of what's happening. Um, on another note, when we look at our mushrooms, 
Uh, we can think of this push-pull when it comes to our beta-glucans, right? These amazing long-chain polylongsaccharides sugars. And polysaccharides are primarily working in our gut, right? We know majority, 70%-ish of our immune cells live within our gut. And uh, I mostly worked with functional mushroom-based treatments in my practice working with autoimmune conditions because there was this wide variability in immunological responses, right? In autoimmune bodies, there's often overactive, too much immune activity happening, but then what the Western pharmaceutical model is, is okay, well, let's put these people on immunosuppressants. So a lot of my clients would come to me on immunosuppressants. They were so vulnerable that they were getting sick every you know, few weeks. They're like, I have no immunity to combat just like day-to-day -day living, like the antigens we're exposed to being human in today's world. And where the functional mushrooms come into play, again, this push-pull is depending on the state of the body, if your body is uh, perhaps immunodeficient or immunosuppressed, the same beta-glucans in our reishi, now I'm like, we should only use Latin names, in our Ganoderma lucidum, will come in and can actually stimulate, right, our B cells, T cells, natural killer cells to stimulate, to basically act like an immune stimulant. Or if the body has overactive immune response, that same Ganoderma lucidum or that same reishi extract could come in and tamper overactive immunity, right? So it's actually, it's actually one compound that has the ability to act as a push or pull based on the state of that body, right? This is the immunomodulation that makes our, our functional mushrooms so powerful for long-term immune support, right? They're not tricking our system in any way to like push us in one direction or another. And this is why they're non-toxic. They're, they're known as tonics. These adaptions are used traditionally more like foods than medicines because they're looking for this balance, this equilibrium whether it's via one compound in the body and, and in our gut or via um, you know, a combination of compounds that have either a louder or softer effect to bring your body into, into that ideal state of, of balance. And we've got a good wavelength going on here because my next question was, was actually about cacao and magnesium. So you just dove into it brilliantly. So thank you for that. But we can just forward fast forward one more to talk about a different adaptogen because there are a range of different adaptogens, of course, that you touch upon in this book, and some are going to be more familiar than others to most people, like turmeric and cacao being examples that most people know. And uh, most of the podcast listeners in our audience will be familiar with lion's mane, reishi, and cordyceps, which you also you also dive into these on the in the book. But a couple of these adaptogens I'm unfamiliar with, and maybe I've seen the word floating around here or there, but two of those are Tulsi and Rhodiola. I had not, I don't have, I have very little frame of reference for either. So we could talk about both, but let's, let's zero in on Tulsi, which is known as holy basil. I did not know that. Okay. I've heard of holy basil, had no idea it was Tulsi and it's considered to be the most sacred plant in Hinduism. So a huge part of Ayurvedic medicine too. What do you use Tulsi for in your practice? And what are some of the benefits of this adaptogen? Oh, I love Tulsi. Um, again, yeah, if you have heard of holy basil, but not Tulsi, you might see this on the supplement shelf and be like, wait, what am I getting? So Oximum Sanctum is Tulsi's true name. Um, so we'll start there. And Tulsi's part of the Lamiaceae or mint family, just like, you know, our other basils and many other mints. And so uh, in that family, there's a lot of compounds that are great for resp respiratory system, right? We use mints for, for maybe like if we have a... Um, like boggy or wet cough, like something bringing us down and it can dry and, and be an expectorant, great for digestion. So Tulsi has all of these like classic components of, of what our mints are used for medicinally. Um, but it's also really interestingly, there's two things I want to mention about Tulsi. I could talk about each of these plants for like 10 hours, but Tulsi is tridoshic which means that it is appropriate for all three doshas or all three body types in Ayurveda. Um, so it's a really great option if you're like, I don't know where to start. I don't know my body type. Like, I don't know about this whole matchmaking thing she's talking about. I just want to start exper experimenting with adaptogen. Tulsi is a really awesome, safe place to start. It's gentle, 
Um, it's more it's more food like than others, right? It's it's cousin to to basil, so you can actually just eat it or or chop it up in a salad. Um, but it's great to make. It's it's easy to extract too, right? You can make a classic tea. We call it an infusion. Just pouring hot water over it, um, and it's known as a wisdom plant. Um, so there's very few wisdom. It's kind of like how reishi is like the wisdom mushroom, right? It's like revered. It it acts on mind, body, and soul. Traditionally, is how it's thought of. Tulsi is similarly. So um, an Indian home is thought to be incomplete if they don't have a Tulsi growing on their lands or, or Tulsi plant on their altar. So this communication between the humans and the gods um, is often is like embedded within the energy of Tulsi. Um, and it's, it's so gentle. So it's great for like stress, um, really amazing longevity benefits, uh, gentle nervous system support and relaxation, um, mood, really amazing mood, mind benefits. Uh, and, and again, it's like, we want to add all these benefits to the adaptogens and yet it's going to be different for each body that consumes it. So we can generalize and say, okay, there's you know, I read through a thousand clinical trials to find the gold standard research that backs up what a lot of these adaptions have anecdotally been known and, and documented for. Um, so, so we do have that kind of modern scientific lens on them, but keeping an open mind, knowing Tulsi, Tulsi is tridoshic, it's a wisdom herb, it's great for respiration, for digestion, for mood, um, for relaxation, and uh, from there, don't be surprised if you experience something totally unique after drinking Tulsi tea for a few days. Um, well, we, we got to talk about rhodiola because rhodiola is so cool. Um, rhodiola rosea is its name. So sometimes we'll see that like the common name is the first word of the Latin. And I actually found rhodiola last summer in Iceland for the first time. Talk about this is, you know, hormesis and, and these species growing in extreme, like super, super stressful environmental conditions. Not only was I in Iceland where there's like black sand beaches and volcanoes erupting and glaciers that like rhodiola wasn't just anywhere. Like it was, I think week two, like hiking. I was on this maybe six hour hike, like five hours into it looking on a hillside, there's a waterfall, there's rocks, changing temperatures throughout the day, and there is rhodiola. Um, and it is, it looks like a little succulent, has these bright, beautiful yellow flowers and these kind of uh, demulcent, like moisture-rich leaves. And we use the root as well, um, but it is so resilient. It, it really represents resilience in nature. Uh, to the point that one of the legends, it's, it's one of its nicknames is rose root as well in different parts of the world. The root kind of has this like rose um, embedded, like almost sketches in it. Um, but more so when, when people would get married, instead of giving them a bouquet of roses, it was a, it was a tradition to give them a bouquet of rhodiola. And this was like, okay, you're about to embark on this next chapter of life full of many turbulences, I'm sure. And so take this rhodiola bundle to give you the perseverance, the strength, the resilience that it represents in nature for the marriage ahead. Um, and it really is an amazing stress supporting, balancing, uh, normalizing adaptogenic root that is great for endurance. Right. So it gives us this strength, this stamina, but like you can just chew on the root. Like Vikings would chew on rhodiola root to get them through like long winters and give them like energy and stamina to keep going. Like up in these, you know, in Iceland or Nordic countries, it's grown in Mongolia, like really, really intense climates to, yeah, give you the energy and stamina and, and calm, right. That like grounded, calm resilience to like move forth through the storm. So really an amazing adaption to play with if you haven't, if you haven't experienced it yet. One of my favorite things about this book is all of the legends that are included. And there's that bit about the Viking weddings and rhodiola and also about Himalayan yak herders who saw their yaks eating cordyceps and then copiously engaging in sexual activity and kind of like learning how to use cordyceps based off of observing animals do that. But that's one of my favorite things in the book is just all these little 
anecdotes and these legends coming from all over the world about the ancestral use of these adaptogens. And I also have to note that Iceland is one of my favorite places in the world. I've been very fortunate to travel to around 80 countries and many different parts of the world. And people will often ask me, where's your favorite place you've ever been? And Iceland often comes up as front and center. And I got exposed to a lot of Viking sagas out there too. They love their Viking sagas in Iceland. So wonderful place. Okay. So one last... One thing I wanted to touch upon, I learned a lot of new words in this book. You know, there's a lot of Latin words. There's a lot of scientific words, you know, interesting studies that were conducted in the Soviet Union that most people have probably never read about or heard about. And those are contained within this book. But one of the words that caught my attention is prebiotic. Now, most people will be familiar with probiotic, but this was the first time I had ever seen prebiotic used. I don't think it's, you know, in the standard lexicon of most people who are talking about health. So what is the difference between prebiotic and probiotic and how do prebiotics function in the world of adaptogens? Yeah. So if you think about your gut, your microbiome, which Tara and I like to call your mycobiome, we don't talk enough about the fungi in our gut, but our gut is a pond. And probiotics are like restocking the pond with fish, right? So you're adding more of the healthy bacteria into your gut to repopulate the microbiome. But if those fish don't have food or nutrients to survive and grow and produce offspring, then you're just going to have to keep taking more and more and replenishing daily. And that's typically the, the routine with probiotics, right? You take it every day. Prebiotics, which are found in our functional mushrooms, right, are the food for these healthy probiotics. And so if we really talk about the root-based approach to health, just like we're not treating a, a headache, a headache, a headache, but we're looking at the body and looking at, okay, what could be these underlying foundational reasons why the body's expressing symptoms, prebiotics are key. We know that gut health is the, the root to so many of our issues, whether it's mood or energy or, or I mean, you name it sleep. It's like, okay, we're, we're starting to really, really pay attention the last maybe decade uh, about our gut health. And uh, I think pro prebiotics are going to be, um, equally, if not more important than, than the probiotics. Um, and we can get them through a lot of our food, right? Mushrooms are one of my favorite ways to consume prebiotics. Um, inulin, like we can get it from Jerusalem artichoke root, um, or even uh, dandelion root. Um, there, there's a lot of like, basically it's a indigestible fiber, right? That makes it its way like through the, through the stomach and actually undigested into our intestinal tract where it can be used for, as food for our probiotics. So pre coming before, right? The food, replenish the food first so that when we do consume probiotics, which Again, I think if we can get as much as as much of our supplements from foods, from real plants, from real mushrooms, like nourishment instead of bottles as possible, so much better, right? Our body's evolved with these things. We know how to process them. So it's like eating mushrooms and then, you know, replenishing your system with a bunch of prebiotics and then getting your probiotics through coconut yogurts or through kimchi or through a good quality john or kombucha, right? That's going to be uh, the most sustainable solution and your body's going to use it um, most efficiently versus like a pre-probiotic pill that you would, that you would take. So super essential. We need both root-based approach to gut health and, and really supporting our microbiome. So if I want to dive deeper into all of this and and many people listening to the podcast, right? We got to do our due diligence and read healing adaptogens and do our own research and cross-reference and this and that. But let's say we get to that point where we are serious about integrating adaptogens into our daily wellness protocol. Where's the best place to start? How do I go about getting a lot of these amazing healing adaptogens that are in the book and really putting them into practice for myself on a daily basis? <laughs> You're going to hate this answer, but it depends on your routine. So my biggest piece of advice with starting with adaptogens is don't do something that is so far off from what you're used to. Like see, notice your daily routines. We talked a lot about mushroom coffee on our last episode, but it's like, what's something you do every day? Adaptions aren't a, are in a quick pill. They're not a magic fix. You have to take them daily and consistently. So it's thinking about what do you do every day? Do you drink something in the morning? Do you make a smoothie? Do you already have a supplement routine? Great. Like, 
what does that look like for you? And then making it as easy as possible to integrate, to habit stack, to add that adaptogen into the processes that you're already used to doing. So if you make a smoothie, for example, you can get a, a high quality, um, you know, adaptogenic powder, for example, as long as it's not a mushroom powder, make sure it's extracted, right? But like some sort of powder you add it in. Or if you do drink coffee, right? Adding ashwagandha or rhodiola or lion's mane to your coffee, amazing idea. Um, if you do something in the evening, right? Putting it right on your, on your counter, like make this easy for you. Um, and luckily today there's lots of really fun new products entering the space that have high quality adaptogen extracts or, you know, potent dosages in them. And so, yeah, the book's a great place to start if you want to say, okay, I shop here, I shop here. Um, if you are really into like DIY and you want to make your own, um, I give some, some suggestions of places like Mountain Rose Herbs or Fro Frontier Co-op or Star West Botanicals where you can actually source you know, that rhodiola root, for example, and make your own tea or get a bunch of dried holy basil, Tulsi leaf and, and brew that into, I don't know, your, your afternoon, like cup of tea or whatever you, whatever you do. Um, so yeah, think about your routine, what's going to be easy, um, how you can incorporate an adaptogen into a habit that already exists. Um, and then really like having an attitude of experimentation and play not taking it too seriously, having fun with it. Like I like to make little energy balls, like that could be really fun. You have maca in there, cacao. Um, and uh, yeah, like know that um, there's there's lots of resources out there, places that you can buy adaptions, which is pretty incredible also to mention. Like these have not been accessible and available to us as humans for many, hundreds some of them thousands of years and now for the first time we can like get them on amazon this is crazy um so honoring that and uh and just playing right bringing maybe choosing one um and saying okay tulsi perhaps since that's been a theme of today is a great place to start i'm going to find tulsi at my grocery store add it to my next thrive market list or, or whatever works for you um and just beginning to experiment and, and beginning that relationship with you. Great. Danielle Ryan Broida, thank you for this wonderful book, Healing Adaptogens. Thank you for coming back on the Mycopreneur podcast. It's always a blast to check in with you. And I'm looking forward to integrating some of these lesser known adaptogens into my own healing protocol. Right on. Thanks so much for having me, Dennis. There's so much to cover in the mushroom universe and so many mycopreneurs leveraging the infinite potential of fungi to create a more ecologically balanced, inclusive and equitable world for all of us mischievous little monkeys. I am completely stoked that you've chosen to spend some of your hard-earned time in our little corner of the Mycoverse. Hop on the gram, say what's up, at Mycopreneur Podcast. That's the handle. Don't get it twisted. We've got the full suite of social media up and running. Twitter, Mycopreneur. Got the YouTubes dialed in, Mycopreneur. Drop us a line. Tell your grandma and your kooky uncle. Tell your wife and your kids. If you're a micropreneur yourself, you want to hop on the pod, by all means, willkommen, bienvenidos, welcome. Don't be a stranger. Let us know your thoughts on this episode, and also let us know what you want to hear in future episodes. This is a team effort. Thanks for stopping by the Micropreneur Podcast. Have a lovely day. We'll see you back here next week.